Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be running down some of the best movies that we've seen so far at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writers Y. Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys. So Brad uh, has also been covering the festival with us. Uh, He cannot be with us on this episode today, but we're going to link to all of his reviews that he's written in the show notes. So I encourage everybody to uh, peruse that and see if anything there interests you and and click on those uh, reviews. Um, We are going to link to all of the reviews that we've written uh, for the movies that we're going to be talking about on today's show in the show notes for this episode too. So if you want to get a little bit more granular with the you know, with our, our specific thoughts on certain movies, um, that's where you can easily find all of our information. So I think for today's episode, the best way to uh, have a sort of wide ranging conversation about this is for uh, HT to pick three movies, Chris to pick three movies, and I will pick three movies. Um, the movies that we, I guess, liked the best or, or uh think that there's the most to uh, recommend or or interesting stuff to talk about. And we'll just go through those lists. And um, if there are any other people on this episode who have also seen those movies, they can join in and we'll just have like a mini conversation about these things. So um, I guess before we get into that, uh, HJ, I want to start with you and we'll go around the circle and just uh, tell people what your experience has been like so far with this virtual uh, Sundance Film Festival. So this is my first time at Sundance at all. I haven't been to the physical festival and I was just excited to be part of, you know, the whole shebang uh, and uh, see all these movies before many people can see them in theaters or on on VOD, unfortunately, but um, just kind of be ahead of that crowd. And I was sort of... Uh, anxious about how the virtual experience would go down because I have uh, had at least two uh, virtual festivals so far and they have been sort of lacking in their um, in their user experience. Uh, Tribeca was the first and it was just a, really just a series of screenings. There wasn't a lot of um, to do about it, but New York Film Festival uh, in the fall was the the biggest one, and they tried to do try to imitate the festival experience by giving these um, limited time windows in which you could watch those movies. 
Um, and it was fine, but it also sort of, and I, I can understand why they wanted to make it part of that uh, communal experience. In some ways it was, but um, some, the, the website was, you know, not the best. It was, it worked in some points and sometimes it didn't work. Um, but I have to say, I was actually really impressed with the um, Sundance Film Festival, like, website slash user experience uh not only did we have several chances to see the movies there was the premiere in which we could get a reserve ticketing and then there was there were second screenings for the press which means you basically get like a a 24 hour to like 54 hour uh window to watch these movies at any point um if you if you miss them at the premiere and um they as far as I know, they didn't run out of like spaces for that. I think there was some fear that they, there was going to be like a limited amount of space, like for seating or something. But um, they, I didn't ha- have that experience at all. And uh, even in, even with the windows for the premieres, like you can't block uh, a movie, like you can't reserve two movies that were in the same block. But you can if you like favorited them. For example, uh, if you finished one in the same block early, you can start another one like right before that block ends and it's like a three hour block so you have time usually to to start another one right before that block ends and i found that a really good way of just kind of marathoning a bunch of movies at the same time and finding more time to watch those movies when on the day they actually premiered and so i actually was yeah very impressed with the sundance um user experience and how uh, smooth the site was for the most part uh it was it definitely was a, a website that took a lot of like data or memory or something to load because my wi- my wi-fi has been really on the fritz uh after this big east coast outage last week so it took a little bit of sometimes for the site to get going for me but once it did it ran pretty smooth yeah, and, and we should mention that, like, uh, I'm not sure what the status is as of right now or when people can listen to this, but um, this year's Sundance was uh, open to a lot of people across the world. Like, people had, you know, regular people without press passes had access uh, in a way that they've never had before to be able to, to tune in and check out some of these movies. So I'm excited that um, a lot of people have, you know, who didn't have to, maybe didn't have the means before or, or the, uh, yeah, the ability to travel to Park City was, uh, you know, these people were able to participate in this festival experience in a way um, that they never have. So um, Chris, what about you? What was your experience like uh, at this this weird virtual Sundance this year? Um, you know, it was fine. I can't complain in the sense that, you know, it ran pretty damn smoothly. I didn't have any problems with that, but I really missed the in-person thing. I mean, I miss in-person things in general, but especially uh, I, like the last real outing I had was Sundance last year. Like that was the last time I went anywhere. Because right after Sundance last year is when uh, the shit hit the fan, I guess. So uh, d- just thinking about how, like, if this were a normal year, I I would be in Park City and I would be going places and I would see be seeing people. It just kind of made me just you know a little you know bummed out, just like ah this this sucks. So you know <laughs> uh, you know the fest itself fine, I guess. A lot of the a lot of the films this year did, felt not as strong as the you know, previous years. Um, but in terms of how it was run and how everything, uh, you know, unfolded, I, I have no complaints there. You know, they did a really good job with making it accessible and, uh, you know, I had no problems with the screeners and all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, it, it was run pretty smoothly. You know, I just wish, I wish this were over and we, we could go places in person again, but you know, maybe next yeah. year. 
I feel you for sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a trade-off, right? Like not being able to, to see people and hang out in person uh, is, is sort of offset a little bit by, like she said, just being able to like finish one movie and roll right into the next one without having to worry about catching a bus or like go all the way across, you know, the, this, this geographic area and cover all this ground and like stress out about potentially missing something or having to wait in lines and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, the, I, I certainly am right there with you in terms of like wishing that it was a, a real thing, but I think under the circumstances they've done as best they could. So, um, with all of that said, let's, uh, let's go ahead and kick, kick this thing off. HT, uh, tell me about the first of the three films that you've chosen. What, uh, was a, a movie that, um, really moved you or interested you or, or that you liked a lot? So the first film I've chosen is Coda, which was the opening night uh, film for Sundance, and it's the the film that I think will has also the the biggest potential for just crossover success outside of the film festival circuit here because it's a really moving and funny and charming coming of age movie about a uh, a. De- a hearing girl who comes from a a deaf family. Her parents are deaf, her brother is deaf, and she has spent her entire life basically acting as like a translator for her family. Um, But all she wants to do is pursue her passion to be a singer. And it's actually a remake of a French film called La Famille Bellier. Um, And it's directed and written by Chianne Hedder. Um, And it's, it's such a, and while it's like a very familiar and, you know, a little formulaic uh, com- like coming of age movie. I also have a big f- warmth for that kind of genre, but I have seen a lot of people pooing the fact that this movie, which is getting a lot of buzz already, um, and was recently bought by Apple for a record-setting twenty-five million dollars, uh, is like the big hit uh, because it's so you know it's it's been there, done that before. But I think despite being so familiar and being somewhat predictable, it's genuine and authentic and earnest enough that it really hits all the right spots um, in terms of just like uh, sensitively depicting a deaf family and depicting them with all their flaws and complexities, uh, allowing them to be sexual, to be funny, to be silly, and to be um, yeah, a little bit... Uh, difficult. And I, I really loved that, um, that aspect of Coda and, uh, also Amelia Jones, who stars as the, um, the protagonist at the center, Ruby Rossi, uh, is phenomenal. It's a real breakout performance for her. I haven't seen her in anything else, but I know that she's been like in a couple of, of just, uh, of other, of like TV series, I think. Um, but she's phenomenal in this. Um, it's really great to see Marley Matlin, Again, uh, no welcome return to the screen. And I also think that uh, Troy Kotzer, who plays uh, Ruby's father uh, and a deaf actor, uh, is a real standout in this movie too. He he kind of has this sort of spiky, bristly persona to him that um, really just feels uh, adds to that uh, the layers to this to this film. So I really enjoyed Coda, and I think that it is definitely a, a big crowd pleaser, but one that yeah, hits all the right spots, uh, hits all the right to- notes, you might say. Awesome. Um, okay, so Apple TV Plus purchased that one. Um, I think we don't know when that's going to be available on that service yet, do we? A-, a lot of times they just like make these acquisitions and then like hold off for a while before announcing an actual release date. I'm not sure. Do you know? Yeah, they don't have a release date as far as I know, but um, we can probably, ex- I don't know when they- when we can expect it, sometime this year. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's move to your second film. Which one is that? 
So my second film is a uh, Maltese film uh, called Luzu. And this is a film that kind of really snuck up on me. It's uh, directed by Alex Camilleri, and it's this neorealist drama that manages to make a a movie about uh, a black, the black uh, market, the fishing black market in Malta, um, compelling. And uh, it follows this, um, this fisherman who operates a luzu, which is a traditional um, fishing boat out of the Maltese islands. Uh, and um, it sp- springs a leak. Uh, and it's a, a luzu that has that was operated by his father, his grandfather, and great-grandfather before him. He's part of this long maritime tradition. Um, but after he becomes grounded, he starts to feel at a loss and unable to sort of operate within this rapidly modern modernizing r- world that is squeezing him out of his livelihood um, and everything that he's ever known. And it kind of, it acts as sort of like this neorealist neo drama meets crime drama. There, It's produced by um, uh, Ra- Ramin Bahrain, who uh, has directed films like 99 Homes, and you can feel some of his fingerprints over the, especially those crime drama um, elements of it. Uh, but the distinct tones of this film and the way that it uh, just uh, approaches this um, sort of dying livelihood and industry with this clear-eyed gaze uh, makes Luzu just really work and um, work as this sort of neorealist moral fable almost um, that uh, about this man who is trying to hold back the tide of change on his own with a wooden boat. And uh, it's a really, really wonderful film, uh, really sensitive and tender, and I highly recommend it. Um, Luzu, I don't think it has been acquired by any uh, distributor yet, but um, I anticipate it being uh, probably one of my favorites of the year. It just uh, it's a really wonderful film and um, a a great marker for Maltese cinema. If uh, I don't really know much of the cinema in that country, but I think it's a a good um, sort of sign of of that of things to come. Yeah, man, I that sounds very much up your alley. And I'm sad that I haven't had a chance to see any of the three movies that you're going to be talking about. So I can't like bounce off you and and really like, you know, build up this conversation uh, beyond just like listening to you rave about this. But um, hopefully this this will make an impact on people and at least uh, allow people to, you know, put some of these films on their radars for uh, for hopefully later in the year if these things get um, acquired. So uh, let's go to your third title. What is that, H.C.? So my third title is I Was a Simple Man. It's directed by Christopher Makoto Yogi, and it stars Constance Wu as a ghost. Um, she's actually not the main character of this. The main character of I Was a Simple Man is Steve Iwamoto. Steve Iwamoto. He plays a man in the final days of his life. He uh, is on the verge of death, and his family is sort of all coming around him, attempting to make him comfortable as he um, sort of spends his final days. And it is this really lyrical, poetic uh, meditation on that, on life. And um, it, in a way that uh, the past and the present are sort of speaking in tandem uh, with each other as uh, this as it kind of descends to this dream state where we see parts of his life, uh, his past play out where he was sort of a, um, he was, he, 
he wasn't a good father. He essentially abandoned his children. And it goes further back to his teen years when he fell in love with his wife, played by, later by Constance Wu. Um, and the sort of um, trappings of, colo- of colonialism in Hawaii, which is where this film takes place, uh, and how that, those scars of those start to play into his own life and uh, his death as well. And uh, it's just a, it's a really gentle um, and contemplative film that I'll admit for like the first half I was sort of bored by. I didn't really, I wasn't really feeling it, but then it kind of just started to grow on me until it eventually like hit me in the, in the chest. And I felt really enamored with this film and how it just kind of uh, takes, takes this, uh, this life, this retrospective sort of look at both colonialism and life in a way that it, we interweaves these elements. And uh, it's, it's really beautiful. And um, so that's I Was a Simple Man. Uh, and uh, it has not, I don't think, been acquired yet either. But uh, it's another film that uh, really, really uh, stayed with me. I mean, l- lyrical poeticism. It's another one that sounds very much up your alley. So. <laughs> uh, I was a simple man. Okay. Um, Chris, let's go to you. What are, uh, what, what's the first of your three choices here? Uh, my first is, is Wild Indian. And I just looked at Rotten Tomatoes and this has kind of like a mixed reaction, which is kind of like pissing me off <laughs> because this is without a doubt the best thing I saw at the fest. Uh, I watched a bunch of screeners before I saw this. And every Sundance movie I was watching before this was just a bust. Like either it was just bad or just like really forgettable. And then I got to this and it like blew me away. So I'm genuinely surprised the reaction is kind of mixed to this. Uh, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but everyone else but me is wrong. This is, uh, <laughs> this is just a, a fantastic, uh, really dark raw movie i mean maybe the subject matter is too bleak for some people i don't know but um it starts in the 80s and uh, we meet this this native american uh kid and he just comes from this terrible abusive home and you know his father beats him and his mother doesn't care about him and you can just tell he's become this sort of like you know shy uh emotionally stunted guy as you know is to be expected when you come from abusive families like that and it boils over and it leads him to commit this, this sort of like senseless thoughtless act of violence and then we we uh he, you know him he th- this guy this kid and his cousin they cover up the crime and then we jump forward uh you know into the present day and uh the guy, the kid is all grown up and he's an adult now. And he's this like cold, uh, just, you know, still emotionally stunted person. And, uh, you know, the past basically comes back to haunt him. I don't want to like give too much away because I feel like the less, you know, the more uh, impactful this movie is, but, uh, just the way this unfolds with this sort of like, uh, it's not like a very rushed movie. It takes its time, but it's not slow paced either. It just sort of unfolds gradually. And the performances, especially uh, the, the lead actor, his name is Michael Gray Eyes, who plays uh, the boy who becomes the man, is just is, is so uh, just strong and memorable. And uh, I don't know, this really made impact with me. And um, I, I'm again, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't gone over as well as. I thought it would. Maybe not enough people have seen it because there's only like nine reviews on Rotten Tomatoes at the time. And this doesn't have a uh, 
distributor yet. So maybe eventually more people will see this, but I, I can't recommend this enough. It's called Wild Indian. All right. Uh, I also saw this movie and uh, basically just echo everything that you said. I, I I think you liked it a little bit more than I did, but um, man, that lead performance is just absolutely killer by Michael Gray Eyes. It's so, so good. So um, I, I think the entire movie is worth watching just for that performance alone because it's so um, like the tracing the history of that character from childhood to what he becomes. And then like what happens to him is just um, really like endlessly fascinating. So, uh, okay. Uh, what is your second film, Chris? Uh, it's passing, which is the, the featured director debut of uh, Rebecca Hall, who is a, an actress. I, I'm a big fan of, she's like, you know, but she was in the town and she was in the prestige and a bunch of stuff. And she's always very good. And she turns out she's a very good director too. Um, and I was a little apprehensive going into this because this is the sort of story where it's, it's wrought enough that in the wrong hands, this could really backfire and become a disaster. And thankfully it doesn't. Um, this is based on, um, a book that was published in 1929 by Nella Larson. And it, you know, it's set in the twenties and it follows, um, two women, uh, two black women played by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. And they're they're light skinned enough that they they can pass for white. And uh, Tessa Thompson's character doesn't do that. She does it every once in a while, but sort of like by accident. But she lives, you know, as as a black woman. But Ruth Negga's character, uh, she's married to a white man who doesn't know she's black. And uh, these two characters, uh, the Tessa Thompson character and the Ruth Negga character, they grew up together. And they haven't seen each other in a long time. And then they, they just reunite by chance and it rekindles their friendship sort of. And, uh, but it also rekindles all sorts of, uh, buried feelings. And, you know, the movie deals with race and gender and sexuality and identity. And, you know, those are all really topics worth exploring. But like I said, if, you know, one thing went wrong with this movie. I feel like it could have capsized the entire thing. And thankfully that doesn't happen. Um, it's, it's a very surprisingly subdued movie. It's very, uh, you know, it doesn't, there's not like big dramatic outbursts. And I feel like that is going to throw a lot of people off because people might expect something more melodramatic maybe. And that's not what this movie is, but, uh, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega are both really good here. I mean, I think this might be like Tessa Thompson's, best performance that I've seen. And the cinematography is just gorgeous. It, it, it's shot in this black and white, almost monochrome way where a lot of the color is just uh, washed out. And I know that sounds kind of gimmicky for a movie that deals with, you know, race and color and stuff like that, but it, it really doesn't come across that way in the final film. So um, I'm sure this is going to generate a lot of budgets because it has big names attached to it. So there is that, but uh, I, I, I was really impressed with this. Yeah, I think that black and white uh, cinematography really like enhances the the themes and does not feel like a gimmick at all. But um, HG, I know that you saw this movie also, right? What did you think about it? Oh, yeah, I found passing to be just divine. I think that even though it is sort of subdued and a slow burn, I it really does work for this film, especially in its, its themes of and like the characters uh, journeys of trying to hide back their own and repress their own true identities and um, and questioning those identities as well. And I agree with uh, Chris that Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega are just 
phenomenal. Like I was wowed by them the entire time. Everything they that they did, their vocal their vocal tics, their gestures felt so lived in and of and part of that era as well. And uns- uncertain as well. I, I feel like Tessa Thompson has had so many complexities to her performance. There's a lot of uh uncertainty to her performance and um and like uh I can't really describe it, but it just felt so like uh, someone who was not trying, struggling with who she wanted to present herself as. And I, I, I love that she was able to to convey that in like simple gestures and um, and her performance ent- entirely. And it was so wonderful. And yeah, I was I'm blown away by Rebecca Hall's directorial debut. I I absolutely love this movie. I do think that there is a bit of a lull in the middle, but I really really uh, enjoyed just like living with this film. Yeah, and I think, uh, Chris, in your review, you mentioned that um, shooting it in the four by three aspect ratio may have been a little bit of a mistake. And I kind of feel that too. I, I feel like this movie is so gorgeous that I wanted to see more of this version of, of you know, 1920s New York instead of less of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, like I said, like, I, I'm very impressed that this is her director of debut, Rebecca Halls, but there's like a f- one or two things she does here that don't work for me. One is the aspect ratio, and there's another thing where, she deliberately lets the camera like go out of focus and like, I get what she's going for, but I, those things feel really distracting from the, the movie itself. And I don't think the movie needed them, but beyond that, I don't have, you know, I can't complain. Yeah. I'm sure everybody will have a chance to see passing soon because like Chris said, there's so much talent associated with this thing. And I think it's getting some, some pretty good uh, buzz so far. So um, I expect this one to be picked up uh, maybe by the time this podcast is over. Who knows? Uh, Chris, let's talk about the third movie that you've chosen. Uh, that's In the Earth, which is the latest from Ben Wheatley, who is one of those directors. Uh, I'm always excited when he has something new, but he's, he is hit or miss. You know, sometimes he'll deliver something great. Uh, you know, Kill List is when I first became aware of him, and that movie is... Uh, definitely not for everyone, but I, I, I loved it. Um, he has another movie called a field in England, which people like with, but that I think is just atrocious and unwatchable. Uh, he directed the recent Rebecca remake, which was weirdly boring. So, uh, like I said, he's, he's hit or miss, but I'm always interested when he comes out with something new. And, uh, this, uh, this movie in the earth, um, he, he, he wrote it at the beginning of the coronavirus lockdown and uh, it, it deals with with a, a pandemic. Uh, uh, it, they don't say if it's the coronavirus or not. They, you know, they keep it vague. But, you know, the, the idea is basically the same where people are social distancing and wearing masks and washing their hands all the time. Uh, but this really isn't about a pandemic. Um, it's just set during a pandemic. And it's about this scientist and uh, this park ranger who trek into this forest to find another scientist who is uh deep in the woods doing research. And along the way, they come across this guy who's living off the grid and he seems like a nice, helpful guy at first. And then it turns out he's, uh, he's not that. And uh, from there, things get progressively weirder and wilder and uh, Ben Wheatley, or I guess, if you will. And um, uh, this, this worked for me. I have a feeling a lot of people aren't going to, be on the same wavelength with this movie because um, there's a lot of uh, choices going on here. And the last like 20 minutes are this cacophony of, of noise and flashing strobe lights. And I know that's going to just 
piss people off. And it's also, you know, if you have epilepsy, you should definitely not watch this movie. I'm, I'm surprised it doesn't come with like a big warning label because it, you know, that, that stuff can definitely be triggering. But, um, uh, I, I, I dug it. I dug how fucking crazy it was basically is what I'm saying. So, uh, this, this one is definitely up there for me with, with, with the, the, the hit of the Ben Wheatley hit or misses, but, uh, your mileage may vary. Okay. So Chris, I watched this movie and, um, your review says, uh, the, the headline of your review says that this is a, a horror film that assaults your senses. And yes. I think you're like underselling the, uh, the amount of, of this movie that just truly assaults the senses. Like, um, you know, not only the, um, the blinking lights, the, the strobe effect that is really like, um, you know, I don't have ep- epilepsy, but I thought that I might like, I, I don't know. I, I thought I might be physically ill watching the movie because of how much strobe there was. And I had to like literally look away from the screen and, and then I couldn't even keep my eyes open and look in my living room because the effect was so strong that it was illuminating the entire room in such a way that it was the same effect as just watching the screen. So I had to literally close my eyes for sections of this movie, which never happens to me, but it was that choice is like so in your face for such an extended period of of time when these characters are out in the woods and, and stumbling upon the scientists and the work that she's doing out there. Um, So I mean, like it really does feel like an assault. And then also this, the total like trickiness of that last 20 minutes, I feel like I had to redefine my personal definition of what trippy was like, you know, I, I feel like that word gets thrown a lot, thrown around a lot, you know, like, um, I don't know, there's that sequence in Doctor Strange, for example, where like Benedict Cumberbatch is flying through the multiverse or whatever the hell. And, and you know, his thumbs have thumbs all of a sudden. And like, you know, there there's this crazy sort of like, uh, kaleidoscopic effect but this movie the way that it uh it 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 takes that concept and just ramps it up to like maybe it's logical conclusion there are like there are shots and images here that are you know dropped in for like what feels like half a frame and <laughs> it just goes and goes and goes and it's really i found it to be like a punishing experience so i'm really glad that it worked for you i just want to present this other uh Oh yeah, this I, other option. <laughs> this is definitely not like a good time at the movies, and like I don't even know if I'll ever like watch this again. <laughs> but I feel like it did exactly what it was trying to do, and that's why I can't, I can't like fault it for being yeah. so fucking bonkers. Like mm-hmm. clearly, they set out to make a bonkers movie, and this movie is bonkers, and I can't. I can't hold that against the film. Um, yeah. And I think like people like Jacob are really going to love this too. Like that, you know, if you're, if you're uh, on Chris and Jacob's wavelength in terms of horror and Ben Wheatley and and that whole thing, I think there's enough of that sort of weirdness and just like uh, brazenness in this movie that, that it will find a, uh, a devoted following. I just, um, I found it really like physically difficult to watch. So uh, yeah, there's that, but that is called in the earth. And I'm guessing, I, I think, did Neon pick this yeah, up? Yeah, they, they bought it before Sundance, actually. So, yeah. Okay. So, this one will definitely be coming out this year, and, and everybody will have a chance to check it out. Um, okay. So, on to my movies here. The first one I want to talk about really quickly is called Summer of Soul, which is a documentary that is directed by Questlove, the drummer of The Roots. And it is his feature directorial debut. Uh, Summer of Soul is about the Harlem Cultural Festival, which took place in 1969. 
uh, the same summer as Woodstock, like a hundred miles away, this festival uh, was was basically going on like right around that same time and has essentially been completely forgotten. And uh, professional uh, a, a professional film crew shot the whole thing, and the footage was never picked up by a distributor or a broadcast network or anything. So it sat in a basement for fifty years, and now Questlove has somehow got his hands on this footage and is presenting it uh, in this documentary called Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And man, this thing is really, really so much fun to watch and so great. Um, the the Harlem Cultural Festival featured this really incredible lineup of artists. Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, B.B. King, Stevie Wonder, a 19-year-old Stevie Wonder who is just absolutely owning the stage. Uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, The Fifth Dimension. I mean, a lot of bands that I have never heard of, but... Um, who perform classic songs that that you definitely have heard of, even if you didn't grow up like you know specifically uh, diving into to oldies or Motown or, or any of the uh, that style of music. I think you'll be familiar with a lot of these songs. Um, man, it, it's just it feels like uh, Questlove is like a, an archaeologist, like he's unearthed this um, amazing treasure and and is presenting it to the world. And it's not just uh, concert footage; it's not just a concert documentary. He sort of intersperses all of these songs and performances with current interviews with like some of the people, some of the musicians who actually performed there and like a handful of the people who showed up and, and went to the show. Um, and he sort of weaves this history of what was going on in Harlem at that time. And, um, and it, it becomes more of uh, it, it's, it's more than just a music movie. It sort of um, becomes like a, a history lesson about what was happening in, in the black community, uh, spe- specifically in Harlem in the 1960s. And um, there's this really great section where there's uh, a reporter that is wandering around the festival asking um, attendees what they think about the moon landing, which just happened. And they're basically just saying like, the moon landing is so far afield from my concerns of what's going on in my community right now. Like this event, this Harlem Cultural Festival, which was later nicknamed Black Woodstock, is more important to me personally than the moon landing, um, which is is kind of an, a, an incredible thing and makes you really think about like the way that this country has uh, prioritized taking care of its its communities or, or not doing that. And, and um, yeah, man, it, it makes you think. So uh, this is a really great movie. Um, it's called Summer of Soul. And I encourage you guys to check it out. I, I think this one got, this was one of the opening night movies and it got a lot of buzz um, coming out of that. So I'm, I'm guessing maybe a streaming service or something will end up picking this one up. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. Did either of you have a chance to check this one out by any chance? I did oh, not, but I, I heard good stuff. No, no. Sorry, okay. HT, I cut you off there. Send no, it's okay. <laughs> My answer is the same. No, unfortunately, I did not, but it's not, I heard good things as well. Okay. Uh, my second film is called Eight for Silver. And Chris, I think you would specifically like this one. It is a, uh, a werewolf movie um, starring Boyd Holbrook, who, you know, I, I think we've had a conversation in, in our Slack about like, you know, Boyd Holbrook is kind of a, a hit or miss uh, presence, a screen presence. But I think he, you know, he, he is, uh, he plays this guy who's like a sort of a clean cut pathologist in the 1800s who wanders into, not wanders, who is, who is called into this community to find uh, the missing son of a, a local wealthy man. And Boyd Holbrook in this movie feels a little bit too clean cut. He sort of feels like he's, he's wandered in from a different era. Um, and this movie is so atmospheric and does such a great job with its production design and its costuming and, and just like setting the tone for 
this story that's set in the late, teen, uh, the late 1800s and it's set during a cholera epidemic. So there are some, um, you know, extra layers of like timeliness here. You were talking, Chris, about uh, uh, In the Earth and it being a pandemic movie. This movie sort of feels like it, a little bit of a pandemic movie, although it's not it's not nearly as um, overt about it as as the, the modernized version of uh, In the Earth is. But there are some incredible moments in this film. Um, there's one that I'm, I already know that I'm going to be pushing very hard for, for our best movie moments of 2021 uh, podcast episode at the end of the year or the beginning of next year. Um, so I'm excited for, for people to get a chance to see this film um, because it's really, it's about so much more than just, you know, Boyd Holbrook hunting werewolves. Although that is definitely something that happens in this movie. It's really about like um, essentially these, uh, these, these wealthy white men who live on this uh, vast, you know, uh, English English countryside, they uh, they massacre a bunch of um, gypsies who roll into that area and say that they have a claim on that land, and they actually prove that they do own this land. And these these old white guys sit in a room and they're like, "Well, we can't have this. We can't have people like this coming to our region and and you know uh, soiling our our uh, you know reputations and all this kind of stuff." So they basically just like murder all of these. Uh, people just indiscriminately and then it's about the consequences of that act of, of that decision and how um this these uh werewolves begin to um terrorize the land and sort of like enact their revenge on these these guys who uh who treat these people so terribly so um it, it's kind of an amazing movie and they're the only negative thing the the big negative thing that i can say about it is that there's, uh, they make the choice, um, who's the, the filmmaker behind this? Uh, Sean Ellis uh, wrote and directed this, and he makes the choice to um, have the werewolves be in heavy CG instead of like uh, prosthetics. And there are some moments where during like, close-ups and stuff like that, where they use prosthetics and it feels like John Carpenter's the thing. And it's just um, so much better. It's, it's you know, light years ahead of the wide shots, which use uh, really, really heavy CG for the werewolves. So that's the only kind of bummer of this movie, but I think there's so much going on, you know, underneath the surface. And it's also just a, a really like thrilling, uh, you know, cathartic kind of movie too. So that's called eight for silver. And I would recommend checking that one out, obviously. And then the final movie is called R hashtag J. And uh, when we saw this one on the Sundance programming list, uh, we all, I remember us all sort of like rolling our eyes collectively at this thing because it is a version of Romeo and Juliet that is retold across phone screens. It's the, the same screen life technology that uh, powered movies like uh, Unfriended and Searching. And uh, this director named Carrie Williams makes his feature debut uh, retelling the Romeo and Juliet story uh, across phones. So it's it's all, you know, Instagram and, and um, FaceTime and um, people sending, uh, like texting gifts back and forth and all of that. And it sounds goofy and it sounds like it absolutely would not work. And the title is really stupid because why is it called R hashtag J? Why is the, why is the hashtag not, you know, why before the, the R and the J? Yeah. <laughs> that, that question is never answered in this movie. And, and the, the actual, um, the, the, uh, the, I don't know what you would call it, but like R hashtag J actually never appears in the movie. It's not like a plot point or anything like that. So it really makes, J. yeah, it really makes no, uh, no sense why this movie is called that. But um, all of that aside, I was surprised at how well this thing actually works. It really, um, 
I mean, the, the performances. So it stars a, a guy named Cameron Ingalls as Romeo and um, Francesca Noel as Juliet. And she is really great. Um, the Romeo character is like, you know, a, a little bit uh, less great than Juliet, I think, in this uh, edition. But the friends, the supporting cast in this one, um, especially the characters of uh, Benvolio, who's played by R.J. Seiler, who you probably know from Me and Earl and the Dying Girl and Power Rangers, and uh, Mercutio, who's played by an actor that I'm not familiar with named uh, Sadiq Saunderson. He just really like blows the screen away. He is like incredible in this movie. He just... Um, like he's the most electric character in the entire film. Um, and it, I, I just kind of found myself like fully buying in, even though it seems gimmicky. I, I really uh, was surprised at how, um, how well this uh, director, Carrie Williams was able to, um, you know, even among all of these uh, heavily stylistic choices was able to sort of cut to the core of the romance in this story and really make you feel that whirlwind love story between these two characters. So um, um, I have a few questions, Ben. Yes. Yes. All right. First, is this movie a prank of some sort? No, that's not my question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do they keep the, the Shakespearean dialogue or is it all modernized? Is it like the, the, the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet where it's modern and they're all talking in the, the that so, this is one of the interesting, uh, the most interesting choices made in the entire movie. When the characters are speaking to each other aloud, they speak in the Shakespearean dialogue. But when they are just texting and typing, it's all in modern vernacular. Hmm. Um, I which I, I think, like that. <laughs> I, I think it works really well. It, it's um, it's one of those things that that really like. I think reading Shakespearean style dialogue would take you out of it so much, and just having the modern uh, text it really pulls you in and makes you feel the sort of uh, immediacy of the story. And it, it feels, it, it makes you feel closer to those characters in a way that sometimes listening to them with the Shakespearean dialogue can keep you at arm's length, especially I'm guessing for younger audiences, because this movie is squarely aimed at like the generation Z kind of thing. Um, you know, people younger than millennials really. And, and people who may not have seen other or may not even be familiar with Romeo and Juliet beyond just like having to being forced to read it in school or maybe not even getting that far in school yet and and not even being familiar with the story at all. Um, so I think the, I think it's a really smart choice to to suck you in with this uh, the, the you know the the modern dialogue in text form and then retain that Shakespearean stuff in the spoken word, but. Um, any other questions, Chris? Um, my other other question is: Do because most of these these screen life movies don't have moments where characters are in the same room, like they're always just chatting via you know Skype, is like that. So, do Romeo and Juliet end up in the same room in this movie? Because I, I feel like they kind of have to, <laughs> like otherwise. Yes. Yes, they do. And some t it's really great because like there are, you know, obviously the whole story is about this this uh, long feud between the Montagues and the Capulets. And every time there's a brawl between those two clans, it's like live streamed on Instagram live, which makes a lot of sense for for a modern take. And I think it, that part works really well. But yes, the the Romeo and Juliet character do meet in person and they like film themselves and uh, sometimes you'll see little like montages of like videos that they've made of themselves just being cute and doing, you know, like teenage lovey-dovey stuff. Um, but uh, a, a lot of times you'll see just the their FaceTime conversations because in this version, uh, Romeo lives a little bit further away than uh, from Juliet than he does, I guess, in, in the original Shakespeare text. So um, it's almost like a long distance relationship that is built up with like these... Uh, 
these intense moments of, of passion where they meet in person. Uh, and you do see those moments on screen too. So, hmm. um, I will say that the, <laughs> there is one choice that, um, that diverges wildly from the original text that is going to be incredibly uh, controversial, I think, for uh, Shakespearean purists and and um, maybe even not for for purists, just people in general. Uh, and it is a it's a questionable choice. It's a very bold, audacious thing to do to uh, to say, you know what I'm going to do is remake one of the most famous love stories of all time in this you know modern super hyper-modern context, and then also change a key element of, of what happens in the story. And I'm not going to say what that element is, because uh, discovering what that is is really um, like one of the interesting things uh, that happens in this movie, because so much of it is is really like uh, just a sort of a beat-for-beat but modernized update on on the classic. Um, but man, I, I'm very curious to see, you know, what the once this thing, thing is like unleashed upon the world, what the general public thinks about this uh, decision. So uh, maybe I'll just leave it with that that tease. But uh, the movie, unfortunately, is called R hashtag J. And hopefully people will get a chance to- for that uh, movie is going to be horrible. Like, how are they going yeah, to do the like, searches on Twitter? Like, how are they going to do a hashtag on Twitter? It's impossible. Yeah, I wonder if they'll ch- they'll end up changing the title because um, a lot of times that happens after Sundance where something will get picked up and a distributor will be like, mm, this doesn't really make sense. So let's completely change this. Um, and maybe the, the change will be as simple as moving the hashtag to the correct place. But um, yeah, we'll have to see about that. So, uh, all right. So really quickly, just to summarize, uh, HT talked about Coda, Luzu, and I Was a Simple Man. Chris mentioned Wild Indian, Passing, and In the Earth. And I talked about Summer of Soul, Eight for Silver, and R hashtag J. Um, Brad, like I said, is not here, but I know specifically he really loved uh, a movie called Mass, The Sparks Brothers, and I know know he was a fan of uh, On the Count of Three as well. So I've put all of his um, reviews, especially to those movies, but all all the other stuff that he reviewed as well uh, in the show notes and all of our reviews there as well. Um, We were going to try to talk a little bit about Prisoners of the Ghostland, which is this really insane Nicolas Cage movie. Uh, but I think we're running a little late on today's episode. So we're going to talk about probably all the other Sundance movies that we've seen that we didn't have a chance to talk about today on tomorrow's episode of the show when we dive into the water cooler. So uh, there's another tease for people who are uh, a little bit more um, or, or who might be interested in other stuff that we saw at Sundance. So um, do in, any other any of you, either of you, have uh, any closing thoughts about um, this episode or, or Sundance at general in general? Um Chris, I think you said you were done with the festival. HC, do you have any other movies that you're going to watch before you uh, call it a you know call it a wrap for this fest? I have one last movie actually, and that's Marvelous in the Black Hole, uh, which I think is also a coming of age uh, dramedy featuring a magician. I'm not sure, but um, oh, interesting. Yes, so that one I, I'm I'm looking forward to as well. Okay, uh, Chris, any closing thoughts or, or anything? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Sundance. I miss the real thing. That's my, I, I really hope next year things are back to normal. I hope Please. I'll get to go with you guys next year. I know that'd be yeah, great. Be Let's great. make it happen. Yes. Yeah. Make it happen. Planet earth. Yeah, come on, <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden signed an executive order saying we get to go back to Sundance. Yes. 
All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all of these stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. This show is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find on the site. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.